Hi, this is Kathy Kruger. And this is Jonah Tree Blosser. Welcome to another edition of Radio Rotary, sponsored by local Rotarians, your friends dedicated to service. Each week we chat with your neighbors about great things happening in your community and around the world. People sharing ways to improve your life. And today our special guest is author Dan Goldberg, and we'll be talking about his fascinating new book, The Golden Thirteen, How Black Men Won the Right to Wear Navy Gold. Well, Dan Goldberg, welcome to Radio yes. Rotary. Yes, and Thank I you. And, and I want to mention, sorry to interrupt, that he is, Dan is an award-winning journalist for Politico. So. And we'll talk about that, too. Yeah, we got to get that in there. Yeah. We have to say good morning, Dan Goldberg. Welcome to Radio Rotary. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. And in the interest of full disclosure, I've got to say I've known Dan a long time. He and I were on radio <laughs> together on WHRW in glorious Binghamton, New York. Oh, my God. And uh, we used to clown around, none of which we're going to repeat on a family show. Right, Dan? Yeah, right. We had a 50,000 watts, and I think we used 25,000 of them. So, it's Dan, Sunday. tell us, who were the Golden 13? Uh, well, again, thank you so much for having me and giving me this opportunity to talk about the Golden 13. The Golden 13 were the first black officers in the U.S. Navy. And many people are uh, surprised to learn that this is a World War II story. Before World War II, uh, black men were limited basically to servants' roles in, in the Navy. Uh, these men, they came of age during a time, you know, you have to put yourself back there, when lynchings were common and carried out without fear of any consequence. Uh, none of these men entered the war looking to break any barriers. Uh, you know, Japan attacked on December 7th, 1941, and everyone's life changed, including these men. Most of them were just hoping to make it home in one piece. But they all excelled during their training. And in January of 1944, they were summoned to Great Lakes, which was the headquarters of the 9th Naval District, and they were told that they had been chosen to be trained as the first black officers in the U.S. Navy. It was and an it was a secret. It was yeah, a secret, and it was right a secret training program, correct. And it was an incredibly momentous occasion. And, you know, what I tried to do with this book is not only tell their story, who these men were, but sort of place them in the context of their times and explain how the Navy went in just two years from when World War II started to saying that black men weren't worthy of being trained uh, for anything, to two years later, training them as officers in the United States Navy. How did they get picked? I mean, you said that they were chosen, so... Yes, uh, they, there were two segregated training schools, one in Illinois and one in Virginia, and the commanders of those uh, training schools were asked to provide names uh, of people who might be worthy of this honor. And then the FBI... Uh, which was Hoover's FBI, right. uh, at the time sort of winnowed down the list, finding men who basically, you know, a lot of what you hear about Branch Rickey and Jackie Robinson, they were looking for men who would not uh, blow up at the racism they were sure to uh, encounter, mm -hmm. and or, or any men with communist connections or communist sympathies or alleged communist sympathies, I should say, or anybody obviously with a criminal record. So that list was winnowed down to 16 men. And those 16 men were then selected for the officer training. And obviously the next question is, why, are we, why do we call them the Golden 13? What happened was all 16 men uh, actually passed the course with flying colors. But the average white rate of passing uh, uh, Navy officers candidates was 75%. So the Navy did not want the first crop of black officers to uh, outshine white officers. So they summarily dropped three of those. Is that right? Yeah, three of the candidates. You know, Dan, you, you spoke about the fact that, um, you know, the Navy was dragging their feet. They were slow to come to the realization that uh, blacks were just as patriotic and just as talented and that uh, black men were in um, what they used to call the mess corps. What was that? Mm -hmm. Uh, essentially, those were the messmen were the people who served food on ships. They were the people who cleaned the deck, shined the shoes. They were servant class. 
So even if somebody was a black engineer or a black lawyer, that's what they were limited to in the Navy. If they but, wanted to join the Navy, they would be, a, yes, exactly. Now, the Army seems to have been a little bit more forward-minded. I mean, they still were segregated, but back as early as World War I, at the early part of the 20th century, you had the Harlem Hellfighters. In the mm-hmm. early part of World War II, you had the Tuskegee Airmen and the uh, United States Army Air Corps. Why was the Army more receptive than the Navy? Well, you hit the nail on the head. They were segregated. Mm-hmm. And the Army, because of just how it's constructed, was able to segregate units. In the Navy, because you have to live on ship, it was very hard to segregate uh, the, the crews oh. unless right. you were in okay. the mess corps, which had its own compartments. So that really was, you know, sort of a driving force. Um, but you're correct. By the start of World War II, the Army had a black general. Um, and right. there was, there was yes. room for advancement. Uh, the Navy... And the Marine Corps were, were well behind. Our guest today on Radio Rotary is author and journalist Dan Goldberg. We're talking about his great new book, The Golden 13, How Black Men Won the Right to Wear Navy Gold, available on Amazon and at fine bookstores everywhere. And uh, Dan, let's talk about the background of The Golden 13. From what walks of life did they come? They really came from, from all walks of life. Um, you know, uh, uh, Frank, uh, excuse me, Sam Barnes was a uh, uh, college professor. George Cooper was a metalsmith. Jesse Arbor was a tailor. Uh, William Sylvester White was an assistant U.S. attorney. Uh, Frank Sublett and John Reagan were, were fresh out of college. So they, they were all, uh, they were, came from all over. What, they, what most of them, almost all of them had in common was they were uh, athletes. They, they were uh, either basketball or f- mostly football players. So they were big, strong looking, you know, right out of central casting for a lot of these guys. <laughs> yeah. um, of what you would expect an officer in the Navy to look like for most of them. Um, and they all excelled during their training. I mean, they were all incredibly intelligent. Even the ones who uh, didn't have a college degree, they were incredibly intelligent men. can't imagine. They must have been just so self-confident. You would have to be to be able to be picked for something. Yeah. They, you know, a lot of them, it's funny you should say that. There, there is a tremendous self-confidence, and, you know, and, and I want to distinguish that from cockiness yeah. uh, that, that ran through this group. Um, even though they had grown up, uh, especially the ones who had grown up in the South, being told they were inferior. Right. Um, you know, I, I write about Graham Martin, who grew up in Indianapolis, which when he grew up, I mean, it is, it is a Klan-dominated city. Um, and, and he goes to segregated schools. Uh, but he's, he's a really talented football player, and he watches the white people play and thinks to himself, you know, I, I'm as good as they are. If I, got on, if I was allowed to get on the field with them. I know I could beat them. And so when he's selected for officer training, that attitude sort of goes with him. And he thinks there's no reason uh, black men can't do just as well as white men. Uh, And a lot of them shared that. You know, a lot of them thought that they, if given the chance, they could certainly prove themselves worthy, which, of course, they could. We're going to find out more about the Golden 13, the first black men to win the right to be naval officers and wear Navy gold from our great guest, author and journalist Dan Goldberg, in just a moment. But Kathy Kruger, who keeps the wind in our sails by sponsoring Radio (laughs) Rotary this week? Well, Jonah, Radio Rotary is sponsored by Salisbury Bank and Riverside Bank, Absolute Auction Realty, Third Eye Associates, Patterson Auto Body, and the Rotary Clubs of Brewster, Carmel, Clarkstown, Goshen, Highland, Hyde Park, Kingston, Liberty, Millbrook, Nanuet, Greater Newburgh, and New City, New York. I'll be back with more of Radio Rotary right after these messages, so stay tuned. Hi, this is Sue Doyle of Absolute Auction and Realty. Back in 1946, we began serving the auction and appraisal needs of the Hudson Valley. 
Today, our clientele spans the globe, but we still consider each person we meet to be an important member of our AAR family. From specialty collections to real estate, antique and estate to vehicles, we auction it all for people just like you. Whether you're a seasoned auction enthusiast or a novice, our website, aarauctions.com, is packed with tips and examples designed to make your buying and selling experiences the best they can be. So enjoy your visit to aarauctions.com, tell your friends about us, and please come back often. That's aarauctions.com. This is Andrew O'Grady, CEO of Mental Health America of Dutchess County and the Mid-Hudson Addiction Recovery Centers, the Mark Agency. Are you a veteran or a family member of a veteran? Is life a struggle at times? Do you feel lost or alone? Let our MHA veterans help you. Contact Anthony Kavoris at 473-2500. He and his team will do anything they can to assist you. MHA of Duchess, the leader in helping our heroes and their families. Hi, this is Tony Marmo from Norman Staffing, and we've been bringing together employers and job seekers since 1980. If you're an employer and have job vacancies, let Norman Staffing help fill them with permanent or temporary workers. We screen, interview, and recommend the best candidates for your company. We make the employment process easier and faster for you. Please call Norman Staffing for your employment needs at 338-9111 or normanstaffing.com. Patterson Auto Body, they know that a new car has more than 15 onboard computers operating everything from the engine to the radio. So technicians not only need to know about automotive repair, but electronics, physics, and chemistry too. The specialized education needed to become an automotive service technician today is equivalent to several master's degrees. Patterson Auto Body is very proud of their automotive technicians. Experience is a wonderful thing. Call 845-878-3456 for a service appointment today. That's 845-878-3456. I knew a lad who went to sea and left the shore behind him. I knew him well, the lad was me, and now I cannot find him. That was the Sailor's Lament from the classic motion picture The Gallant Hours, starring James Cagney as World War II naval hero, Vice Admiral William Bull Halsey. And we're exploring the history of some other naval heroes with author and journalist Dan Goldberg and his great new book, The Golden Thirteen, How Black Men Won the Right to Wear Navy Gold, available at Amazon and fine bookstores everywhere. And Dan Goldberg, welcome back to Radio Rotary. Thank you so much. Still a pleasure. So, Dan, for those who may have joined us late, remind us, who were the Golden Thirteen? The Golden Thirteen were the first black officers in the U.S. Navy, and the book explores both who they were in their own lives and how it came to be that the Navy decided to integrate the officer corps. You know, we mentioned the first part of the show that uh, the Army was more receptive to having African Americans in their corps, uh, in their ranks, and that they had something, you know, the, the world-famous group, the Harlem Hellfighters, and Mm -hmm. uh, they they, they trusted them to, you know, fight for their country. And there seems to have been, in the course of your book, a change in viewpoint when the Navy secretaries changed. The Navy Secretary, Frank Knox, didn't seem too enthusiastic about it, but after he died and and the Navy Secretary was James Forrestal, things changed. Explain a little bit about that. 
Sure, sure. So uh, Frank Knox is the Secretary of the Navy. Uh, he was appointed in 1940. So just as the Roosevelt had, is, uh, is on the eve of winning his third term, uh, and we are obviously gearing up for World War II. Uh, World War II has already started in Europe, and the U.S. would enter it just about a year later. Yeah. Uh, so Frank Knox becomes Secretary in the summer of 1940. He dies in early 1944. Uh, so the, the war is obviously still ongoing, and he is succeeded by James Forrestal, uh, who is far more liberal on matters of race, really on matters of everything, than Frank Knox. Um, you know, it's, Knox is clearly the, the largest barrier to integration of the Navy during World War II. Mm. Um, I, but it would be a little unfair to say he's the only barrier. You know, Knox defers a lot to his admirals, uh, many of whom graduate, in fact, all of whom graduated Annapolis, uh, which is obviously in the South. Uh, they the Naval are, Academy. The Naval Academy, yes, correct. Uh, they are, mo almost all of them were born in the 19th century. So this is not, you know, this is an old crew uh, with, with very old world thinking. And then none of them uh, uh, endorse the idea of integrating ships. And, and many of them have really uh, racist, vitriolic racist uh, attitudes toward black men. Um, in fact, when they are debating at the beginning of 1942, when they're debating whether or not to even allow black men to be trained uh, in, for the general service as engineers, as, as quartermasters, forget officers, just allow them to have basic skills on a ship. Uh, Major General Thomas Holcomb, who's the commandant of the Marine Corps, which at the time was the only branch that had remained completely segregated, uh, told the, the uh, Naval Board, which is a group of advisors, that he'd rather fight with 5,000 whites than 250,000 blacks. That's so, an astounding I mean, attitude. That's, that's an yeah, astounding it, attitude. It's, it's really, I mean, it's, it's really pervasive throughout the top ranks of the Navy. And of course, Knox doesn't fight back, doesn't push back. He, he has, his attitude was there's nothing more important right now than making sure the admirals are happy. And so he, he puts up no resistance to that racism. And then and when James, know, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, you know, this racism, uh, mm -hmm. which is fairly obvious, as you point out in your great book, uh, The Golden 13, How Black Men Won the Right to Wear Navy Gold, um, affected recruitment in the black uh, communities. Uh, they have, you know, there was a common attitude, you know, I'd rather fight for freedom at home against the Ku Klux Klan than fight overseas. Uh, it was sort of counterproductive to have this kind of racist attitude. It was terribly counterproductive, and it concerned Roosevelt, uh, the president, and his administration. You know, the, at the time, FDR was making a case that this was a war to protect democracy. Um, and he gave a very famous speech, uh, the Four Freedoms speech, uh, where he outlined basic human rights that the United States and its allies were fighting for against Germany and Japan, these, these bulwarks of fascism. And African-Americans who listened to this on the radio you know, thought these words were pretty hollow. Um, but when they heard Germans and Nazis talking about a superior race, they thought to themselves, well, that sounds familiar. You can hear a lot about superior races in the U.S. Senate. Uh, and so, yeah, go ahead. You were mentioning Franklin Roosevelt. Tell us what Mrs. Roosevelt, Mrs. Roosevelt Eleanor yeah. Roosevelt did. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So Eleanor Roosevelt, and, and this is well documented throughout history, um, was essentially an ombudsman for the African-American community and, and really pushed her husband on matters uh, of race. You know, she insists that he meet with civil rights leaders throughout his presidency, in, including in 1940, when there's a, a very famous meeting between President Roosevelt and, and civil rights leaders, uh, Walter White and A. Philip Randolph, to discuss uh, integration in the armed forces. Um, you know, she, is, she famously rides with the Tuskegee, or flies, I should say, with the Tuskegee Airmen. So she is constantly a champion for integration and civil rights. 
Um, in regards to, it, it's funny, in regards to the specific officer corps in the U.S. Navy, integrating the officer corps, I searched, you know, high and low for some record of her involvement, and I, I couldn't find any. Um, by then, by 1944, her attitudes were clearly well known, uh, but it was really the president himself who pushed more when it came specifically to the Navy and the officer corps than, than it was uh, Mrs. Roosevelt. But obviously, she played a tremendous role in the 11 years leading up to that point. And of, in her course, of course, the military didn't become fully integrated until Harry Truman became president uh, in the 19, uh, uh, you know, during was 48. War. Correct. Yeah. 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 yeah absolutely. Now, I, have a, I, yes, I, Kathy. I, I grew up outside of a Great Lakes Naval Academy training center and went to school uh-huh. in Chicago there. Oh, okay. What, what was it like for these men um, going through their training there? You know, it, we, we spoke earlier uh, about how uh, it was a secret training program. Yeah. And as a result, it was very lonely. I mean, they, they were given a barracks to themselves. You know, uh-huh. you have to remember these barracks yes. were made for hundreds of people. And it was just the 16 of them uh, in this room by themselves. They were allowed to talk to no one except their own, you know, their wives uh, who they could call. Um, and they were basically given a, a uh, very little time to learn a tremendous amount of material. The entire officer training program took place between January and March of 1944. And they were expected to master what white recruits were white officer candidates, I should say, uh, spent years studying. Years to do. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. The the amazing thing, the amazing thing about um, their attitude was that it was all for one and one for all, sort of like the Three Musketeers and Alexander Dumas. They, They helped each other, they coached each other, and they stayed up late at night with flashlights in the, in the latrines yep. to, to do extra study and extra practice. Yeah, they, they were brought in in early January and they realized immediately what this meant, not only for their personal glory, but what it meant for the, the race. I mean, it really, you know, it really is kind of a Neil Armstrong, one small step for man kind of moment. Um, they, they understand intrinsically that if they succeed, it opens the door for all black men. And if they fail, it closes the door for all black men for, you know, God knows how long, because it will be very easy for the Navy to say, you see, we told you they're not up to it. Right. And we're going to find out. Yeah. We're going to yeah. find out more about uh, this terrific piece of history oh, uh, from historian, author and journalist Dan Goldberg and his great new book, The Golden 13, How Black Men Won the Right to Wear Navy Gold right after these messages. So stay tuned. There is always a reason to live. This is Andrew O'Grady, CEO of MHA of Dutchess County and the Mark Agency. Suicide impacts tens of thousands of people each year and is often the result of untreated depression. Do not let the stigma keep you from talking to your doctor. The Claudio Cares Foundation and MHA want everyone struggling with depression to know that we all have a reason to live. Don't be a statistic and don't leave your loved ones wondering what they should have or could have done. What is your reason to live? Call MHA at 473-2500. Salisbury Bank and Trust Company offers personal and business banks. Residential mortgages, commercial lending, and trust and wealth management services. With 14 locations throughout the tri-state region in Dutchess, Orange, and Ulster counties, the northwest corner of Connecticut, and southern Berkshire County, Massachusetts, which includes our Riverside Division offices in Poughkeepsie, Red Oaks Mill, Fishkill, New Paltz, and Newburgh. Salisbury Bank is your local bank in your community, making local decisions and delivering the highest quality of customer service. Salisbury Bank is your local bank for all of your personal Personal business and wealth management needs. Visit them at SalisburyBank.com. That's SalisburyBank.com. Salisbury Bank and Trust, member FDIC, an equal housing lender. Salisbury Bank, 
enriching. Hi, I'm Rotarian Susan Simon of Third Eye Associates. Rotarians devote themselves to caring for others. Sometimes we forget to care for ourselves, especially when it comes to planning for our future. At Third Eye Associates, we provide fee-only financial life planning, financial transition planning, and wealth management strategies to help you integrate your life and your money. ThirdEyeAssociates.com for more information or call us at 845-752-2216. That's 845-752-2216. Welcome back to Radio Rotary. This is Jonah Trebois and my usual co-host, uh, Sarah O'Connell Clayter is away this week, but we have the boss lady, our great producer, Kathy Kruger. Hi, Kathy. Hi, Jonah. I'm just so excited to be learning more and more about our, our author's uh, book here. Right. Right. And we have a great guest, Dan Goldberg. Dan Goldberg, yes. And author Dan Goldberg and his new book, The Golden 13, How Black Men Won the Right to Wear Navy Gold, available on Amazon and fine bookstores everywhere. So, Dan, just remind us, who were the Golden 13? Golden 13 were the first black officers in the U.S. Navy. And, and this book tells the story of how that came to be and who these men were. Now, and, uh, and Dan, tell us, yes. how, how long it took you to write this book and... And who, and some of the women you interviewed for this. <laughs> sure, I, sure. I just, I like that perspective just a little bit. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I started working on this uh, in 2011 and obviously the book came out in 2020. So that gives you a sense of, of how long it took. Um, a lot of it, obviously I have a full-time job as a reporter. Uh, I work now at Politico. Um, but yeah, it took in a tremendous amount of time to research this um, because I really wanted to do their story justice. I didn't want to leave any detail to chance. And, and along the way, you know, when I started, all the, all the men had passed. But I was fortunate enough to interview some of their wives and, and most of their children. Um, and it was fascinating, you know, obviously the children came after the war or, or their memories certainly came after the war, uh, but the wives were, were fascinating and, and so generous with their time. And I'm very fortunate that I was able to speak with them. Um, they provided an invaluable perspective about what it was like for their husbands to go through this training and also what it was like to live, uh, you know, at that time. Um, for example, uh, George Cooper's wife, um, lived with him in Virginia uh, during the 40s and, and talked of how horribly racist and bitter she felt at the time and even later. You know, she, uh, I had interviewed her, um, I want to say in 2012, and she was still viscerally bitter about the treatment and racist epithets hurled her way. Um, so much so that she, she said she never really understood why black men would fight in any war for this country and up, in, up into and including the war in Iraq. And yet her husband uh, was one of the first U.S., uh, sorry, one of the first naval officers in, uh, and, and a real hero. Right. Let, let's talk and about that. And that had to be kept a secret, too. So she probably, she had to keep it a secret also, correct? Yes, uh, of yeah. course. You know, and, and she spoke of how, you know, he would call her up uh, and basically be on the verge of tears and, and saying, I don't know if I can do this. This is too hard. And even though she had this, this real resentment toward the treatment that black people faced and this real antipathy toward American culture at the time, she, she bucked him up. She said, absolutely not. You, you keep fighting. You give them hell. You do not back down from this. And, and you know, she's as much a reason as anything uh, that George Cooper succeeded in this class. And, and, uh, and he said as much for Behind decades every, after. Behind well, every know, great man. <laughs> you know, the black community at large uh, uh, also... Uh, had uh, 
second thoughts about should they be fighting in the war and if they're going to fight in the war let's let's prove how good how good we are everyone remembers uh, churchill winston churchill the british prime minister used to put up the v for victory sign but there was something going on uh, called the double v sign what was that all about yeah what is that yeah so in early 1942 uh the pittsburgh courier uh which is a uh, one of the largest black newspapers in the country prints a letter from uh th that talks about if, if we're going to do this Let's have the V not only stand for a victory abroad, you know, against against our enemies, but a victory at home, meaning overcoming racism. And it's dubbed the double V campaign. And it just it goes viral for its day. It takes off like wildfire. And, and all of a sudden you see uh, black uh, African-Americans across the country sporting the double V sign. There are double V buttons, double V stickers, double V, double v beauty pageants. Um, and it really takes off, but not only in the African-American community, it takes off in the white, quote unquote, white world as well. Eleanor Roosevelt is flashing the sign. Humphrey Bogart is flashing the sign. It becomes a, it's like flag pins today. Everybody in Congress has to show their support. And so it really becomes a, a huge uh, opportunity to remind Americans that, you know, if we're going to fight for democracy, it's not just fighting the Germans and Japanese. So, Dan Goldberg, what got you interested in looking into the history of the first black uh, officers in the United States Navy during World War II? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I, I mentioned before that they had all passed, and, and I had read an obituary for one of the last surviving men. Um, and it was a pretty short obituary, and I just thought, wow, I, I never heard of this, these guys before. And, you know, I had a passing familiarity with the Tuskegee Airmen and the Buffalo Soldiers, but I had never heard of the Golden 13. So I Googled it. Um, and there really wasn't much there. And uh, th there was one oral history book written by, uh, or edited, I should say, by Paul Stilwell, but no sort of uh, nonfiction narrative that explained how this happened. Uh, and the, I just kept getting more and more interested in it and trying to understand more and more about, as I said earlier, how the Navy could go from in 1942, not even allowing black men to, to be anything more than messmen, to 1944, training them as officers. I wanted to understand that story. And nothing had been written about it before, so it just sort of built and, and upon itself um, and snowballed. And, and I, I took on the challenge of writing a book to sort of bring these heroes back. Isn't there any kind of history? Nothing. I, I would hope there'd be articles or something that would, you know, yes, there display are, in a library somewhere. You know, sadly, they, they really became a footnote of history. I mean, if huh. you look at larger books about World War II um, or integration of the military, they get a paragraph here and a paragraph there. So they weren't completely lost, but there had never, they had never been main characters uh, or protagonists, uh, I guess. Uh, and, and I thought, you know, that, that really did them an injustice. I think some of that has to do with um, the acclaim the Tuskegee Airmen have and, and sort of our, you know, we're a John Wayne culture, right? We, we want to see people <laughs> fighting over the seas and, and, and they don't, I think that's sort of, doomed them a little to, to the backwaters of history. And also they didn't talk about it. You know, the Tuskegee Airmen had enough people who were willing to share their stories that they became uh, more, more, uh, they, they grew in stature over time. The, what's one of their most remarkable things about the Golden 13 is that after the war, they go on to do some pretty amazing things in civilian life. Only one of them remains in the military and they don't talk about it. They don't talk about it with their kids. They don't talk about it in the press. They sort of just say, well, that was the war and we did what we had to do and, and we're glad we did it. But there was no, no hype, no promotion. 
Huh. Um, and so, you know, it, it took 30, 40 years for the Navy to even recognize their achievements. So, Dan Goldberg, uh, your book, The Golden 13, yes. How Black Men Won the Right to Wear Navy Gold, is an important addition to that history. It's available yes, it on is. Amazon and fine bookstores everywhere. And let's close out, Dan, by this thought. You know, our country is, again, throw, going through some racial strife, uh, difficulties of relationships between people. What example uh, do we get from the Golden 13? What do they have to teach us? You know, it, it's, I was constantly struggling between these two thoughts of, one, isn't it sad that we're still here? You know, that we're, we're still debating whether we should have Confederate flags on Navy bases or Confederate base names, you know, things like that. Right, right. On the other hand, I think the lesson, the, the most optimistic lesson of the Golden 13 is that this stuff does move the ball down the field. You know, in the 1940s, when civil rights uh, protesters were, were marching for better integration in the Navy, they could not have known that four years later, there'd be officers. Mm-hmm. They, the, the regular average Joes who wrote letters to their congressmen saying that my son deserves to have a place in this Navy, even though he's black, could not have known that two or three years later, there would be officers in the US Navy. And so when you see people today marching for civil rights, they have no, you know, it can seem like well, this is an eternal struggle that we're never moving anywhere. But you never know what the Golden 13 teach us is you never know what door you've pushed open. And it might be in two or three years we see a tremendous breakthrough, even though it will never, of course, solve the overall problem there. There will be racial strife and racism in this country for, unfortunately, for a long time. You don't know what effect your little letter or your little sign or your little protest has on the greater thread that we're pulling on in this tapestry. Well, Dan, part of that tapestry is your great new book, The Golden 13, How Black Men Won the Right to Wear Navy Gold, Beacon Press, available on Amazon and fine bookstores everywhere. Dan Goldberg, thank you so much for joining us today on Radio Rotary. Thank you so much, and I hope you all have a happy new year. It was great talking to you. You Same here, Dan. And Kathy, who makes our New Year's happy by sponsoring Radio Rotary this week? Well, Radio Rotary is sponsored by Mental Health America of Dutchess County, the Mark Foundation, Norman Staffing, and by the Rotary Clubs of New Paltz, Patterson, Pearl Rover, Philmont, Pleasant Valley, Poughkeepsie, Arlington, Ramapo Valley, Red Hook, Rhinebeck, Southern Ulster, Suffern, Wallkill East, Wappinger Falls, and Warwick Valley, New York. For the entire Radio Rotary team, my co-host Sarah O'Connell Clayton, We'll be back with us next week. Our producer, Kathy Kruger, and our production director, Randy Turner. This is Jonah Trebowasa thanking you for tuning in and inviting you to join us again next week at this very same time for another edition of Radio Rotary. And don't forget our website, radiorotary.org.